We'll hear argument first this morning in case 06-11206, Chambers versus United States. Mr. Hockman. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. Failure to report is not a violent felony under the Armed Career Criminal Act because it presents neither a serious potential risk of injury to others nor involves violent and aggressive conduct. The government argues that failure to report satisfies both the risk of injury and violent aggressive conduct standards for the same reason, the prospect that an offender will violently resist resist arrest upon completion of the offense or upon doing — for having done the offense. That potential and that potential risk alone is neither as a matter of fact nor law sufficient to satisfy either the risk of injury or the violent aggressive conduct standard. Beginning with the risk of injury, the statute refers to a serious potential risk of injury, and by using the word serious, Congress indicated not just any felony, not just any felony which carries necessarily some risk of injury would be included. The risk that must be generated must be one that's somehow greater than something that warrants singling out this sort of offender as the sort of person who's deserving of greater punishment for his recidivism. I take it you concede that a breakout as opposed to a failure to report would be covered by the statute? Uh, Yes, Your Honor, I think it would. I think that, in fact, one of the critical errors that the Courts of Appeals have made and that the government made here is equating breakout, prison, escape with failure to report. They're entirely different. They're importantly different, both, again, as a matter of analytically the categorical rule and what you would look at to determine whether this sort of person uh, satisfied the violent and aggressive standard. And we now know, in light of the Sentencing Commission's report that was filed just last — that was filed with the Court just last week, that the risk of injury associated with uh, prison breakout escape and failure to report is dramatically different. And that mistake — Suppose it were shown — it's just hypothetical. <laughs> suppose it were shown that 90 percent of all uh, escapes under the escape statute — uh, were breakouts involving uh, weapons, 10 percent for failure to report. Would that affect how we decide the case? This case? Yes. Well, since I think since this is not a prison breakout case, I, I don't know whether data about breakouts. I mean, do we, do we look to the crime to see generally whether or not it involves uh, violence That's, and, 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 and serious risk of, of harm? I think you, I think the categorical rule does require you. So that in my hypothetical, it would be a more difficult case than the case we have here? Or would it be the same? I think in your hypothetical where prison breakout is involved, where prison breakout is involved. My my hypothetical is under the statute, if you look at the whole universe of prosecutions under the escape statute, 90% of them are for breakouts involving weapons. I don't think that you look to, um, the universe under the escape statute. You, you can under Shepard. That's what we look to in Begay. But the, the, the issue under Shepard and the, the approach under the categorical rule requires you, uh, allows you to look at uh, a, a narrower subsection of the statute if the charging document yeah, and other yeah. reliable indicia yeah. uh, indicate that. And in this case, it's undisputed that Mr. Chambers was convicted only of failing to report. He was not convicted of the more serious offense of prison breakout. And, in fact, in Illinois, they're punished at different levels, and, uh, and the evidence is absolutely clear. Well, maybe um, — I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I, I thought what Justice Kennedy was asking is, what if you have a statute that is just escape or whatever and doesn't break it down like that? 
and that point will we look to see what the, the crime of escape was typically like? Most of them were breakout or most of them were the other thing? You uh, have, I gather, two separate provisions, but what if you don't? Yeah, and that, that, that is a difficult question under the categorical rule. I think that the first step would be to determine whether there's anything in the record. Under Shepard, you can look to other indications of uh, whether the conduct at issue that was found by the jury or that was pled to, uh, either from the indictment or at some plea colloquy, whether there's some more specific indication. If not, I think then what you would look at, and, and I think here you would look at, to the extent you're looking at risk on the risk of injury side, you would look at the best available information. If that's if that gives you a run of cases where you well, see that it's typically, I'm sorry. If that's the case, I'm looking at 720 Illinois statutes 5316. It's reproduced at page 2A of the government's brief. It, they don't. It doesn't seem to be a separate provision, whether it's a breakout or a failure to report. But here, the charging document was clear, and under Shepard, the charging document is something you're also allowed to take into consideration. And there's no doubt under the charging document that he was convicted of merely failing to report. And what was the sentence for that? For that? It, 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 the sentence appears that they extended his probation. He had to serve the four weekends that he had failed, for which he had failed to report, and his probation was extended. But he didn't get any extra jail time. He did not get any additional jail time, as far as I could tell from the record, Your Honor. There, there's really a problem about about what you suggest. Uh, it, it, it may destroy the whole benefit of the categorical approach. I mean, you can always shave something down to become a narrower crime. Uh, an escape statute, for example, I suppose you could look to see whether the particular escape in question from the charging document uh, was an escape that used firearms or was an escape that, uh, you know, that injured or killed guards. And, you know, that gets us into the case-by-case -case, uh, examination that it is the whole purpose of the categorical approach to avoid. Now, how, how do we how do we avoid uh, getting to the bottom of that slippery slope? I, I, think this, I think this Court took that step in Shepard, and it did it in a very narrow and circumscribed way. It did it by saying the only things you're allowed to consider are things that are as reliable as the charge itself and the elements essential okay. to, to Yeah, but I mean, the, the charge mentions, uh, mentions a farming. Anything that's in the charge can be used to, uh, uh, to, to narrow the, uh, the crime that if, we're looking at. If the jury instructions were clear, if it's clear that the jury had to find the presence of a firearm, then I think it complicates that is, I think some courts refer to it as the modified oh, it, it, it has to be an element of the crime. If, if using a firearm is not an element of escape, then I don't have to worry about it. If, if, if it's correct, if it's not an element in the sense that he either pled to it or jury necessarily found it as a necessary matter, and that's really what Shepard says, it has to be something that we necessarily know occurred from the fact of conviction. And okay, but doesn't have to be an element. So if all the evidence in the case was that, you know, he, he, he wrestled a gun from the, uh, from the guard and made his way out of the prison that way, if the jury found him guilty, that was the only basis on which it could have found him guilty, that, that would be I, I, I don't think that Shepard permits you to look into trial transcripts of evidence that was presented. It just says, what did the jury necessarily find? And, and the, what I mean by jury instructions is how was the jury instructed? What did it have to find? 
What did the jury have to find in order to convict? Well, that sounds Only like those elements. Facts. That sounds like I think it is elements, but if you look at the if you look at the cases that we've had to decide under this statute in the last couple of years, do you think they illustrate that the categorical approach just doesn't work in this situation? Because it puts us in the position for every single crime that comes up here of making, of trying to ascertain what is the serious risk when we don't have any empirical, we don't have a number quantifying what a serious risk is, nor can we generally find what the risk is that's associated with a particular class of cases. Uh, maybe, the, maybe when Congress enacted this, they never anticipated that it would be done on a categorical basis. Why, why not just have a determination as to whether there was a serious potential risk in this particular case? So if you have a, a, uh, a nonviolent person who walks away, that's one thing. If you have somebody who has a, a long list of convictions for violent, violent crimes, and, uh, and escapes, that's another situation. Uh, I think there are two problems with that approach, Your Honor. First, uh, as the Court said in Shepard, the categorical rule, which was adopted way back when the Court first confronted the statute and has been consistently applied ever since, more or less anticipated the Sixth Amendment apprendi concerns that might come from digging in and trying to attribute conduct, which has not been found, uh, by a jury which doesn't have that level of reliability, whether it's an element or was on a special verdict form or, so, or, or, or some other or was par- uh, admitted to in a plea. Well, isn't that a separate question? If, if, it had to be, if it has to be found by a jury, it could be submitted to the jury. Well, if it was submitted to the jury, then I think under Shepard it's something that, that, that could be considered, and that would be part of what's been referred to as the modified categorical approach. I think the problems with the categorical approach that you're, that you're identifying, courts have tried, and, and Shepard itself, in effect, amended enough to provide some kind of flexibility. The other reason to, to, to hold back on such a sea change is this is, after all, a statutory case, and the categorical rule has been this Court's approach uh, from the beginning. Congress uh, could easily revise the statute if, after 20 years, it hasn't. Well, it could, and if it had read these cases uh, and it was paying attention to this problem, you would think it would uh, go through a list of crimes and say, these fall within it and these don't fall within it. But obviously it hasn't done that. I think that would make everybody's job, the bar, and, uh, and this Court much easier. Uh, well, it might not if it just said escape, and then you'd have this same problem. Uh, that might be the case, although if it just said escape, I think I'd actually have a substantially harder case than what we have here, because what we have here doesn't resemble the kind of violent and aggressive conduct that this Court in Begay said is going to be the standard and exemplar of the sort of conduct that Congress was thinking about. It added, this Court in Begay said that the serious potential risk of injury is just one part of the, in- the inquiry, that Congress was also singling out uh, crimes committed in a certain way. And if that, re- if that requirement is going to have any bite, if it's going to do the job of singling out and separating out, separating out cases, it has to be something beyond the mere routine, ever-present prospect that an offender might resist arrest for having committed the offense after police discover that he's done so. And, in fact, if you step back for a moment and just visualize I mean, it's a- Surely it depends upon how, how uh, um, what should I say, how often that prospect is uh, realized. It, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that the prospect. I mean, the, the statute itself lists a lot, robbery. And, and 
robbery uh, very often doesn't involve any, any threat of injury, but, but all in all, we think it does. Obviously, Congress thought it did, right? Well, in the main, I actually think robbery would, would satisfy under the first clause because it has as an element the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force against another. Uh, but I, I think uh, the concern that escape is much more easily detected than other crimes is obviously true. And so the prospect that the offender will be arrested is obviously greater than in other, in other crimes. But the point is the, the standards, uh, the standard imposed by Begay and the, not, the notion that the conduct must be violent and aggressive, if you step back and visualize what it is about burglary, arson, extortion, or the use of explosives that can properly be characterized as violent and aggressive, surely it is not the prospect that an offender will have been found out for having committed those offenses. Police will be dispatched to arrest them. And then the offender, upon that confrontation, will violently resist arrest. It just, it's not, it's not what those enumerated offenses are doing in the statute. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to say robbery. I meant to say burglary. Why is burglary violent, violent or aggressive? I think the reason is because I mean, burglary, by its nature, is uh, you know you do it at night. You don't want to be detected. It's not violent and aggressive at all. It's sneaky, is what it is. I, I assume that robbery is violent or aggressive. You're quite right about that. I, I say burglary. Your home and your home. It's going to get violent and aggressive. Yeah, but it, that, that may be. But but it does not, in its nature, indicate violence or aggressiveness. Well, I, I think Justice Souter has it exactly right. I think. The reason why the court in Begay and Taylor, by the way, singled out burglary as having some kind of inherent dangerousness or violence or aggressive conduct associated with it is because it involves an act of invading the space of another. And cultural expectations and even common law expectations about how others might respond suggest that that scenario that you have willingly created, knowing full well that another might respond violently to what you've done in the event you've been detected. Get you right back into the soup. What you're saying is all it requires is that there be a potential for violence or aggressiveness, right? What, what it and that's, that's what the government says here. There's a potential for violence or aggressiveness. What it, what it requires is the conscious creation of circumstances that you have good reason to believe is going to ignite in violence. And if we learned anything from the data that's been submitted to the Court, both by the Sentencing Commission and by the government, it's that there's very little reason to believe that even the distant arrest scenario for those who fail to report doesn't carry with it very much of a risk of injury at all. In fact, in all the materials that have been submitted to this Court, there is not a single-sided instance or case of an innocent bystander or a police officer who has been injured in connection with a confrontation from arrest for failure to report. There are none. Now, to be sure, there are some instances of violent confrontation, and I'm not here saying it's impossible that there would be injury associated with an arrest scenario. The point is, it's nothing different. There's nothing in the record that would give us any reason to believe this is the kind of special violent conduct that Congress was singling out for special treatment. I should also add that excluding failure to report from the statute isn't going to create any kind of crack through which uh, the sorts of people the government appears to be concerned about might fall through. And the reason is this. 
the, the several anecdotal cases they cite in their brief and a couple of the cases from that Massachusetts reported back to them, which had involved some kind of violent resisting arrest, those individuals were charged, separately charged for assault and battery and similar crimes on a police officer. It's unsurprising that when that happens, those individuals will be separately charged and convicted for their violent conduct. So the only work that is done by sweeping away the categorical rule, doing serious damage to the categorical rule, undermining Begay, the only work that's done is to encompass people who we have reason to believe didn't engage in violent conduct. That seems to me a strange way to interpret the statute, and certainly not the sort of thing this Court would want to close its eyes to. Um, the last thing, Your Honors, is it's important to preserve the distinction in Begay between the violent and aggressive standard on the one hand and the risk of injury on the other hand. And the government's approach collapses them. The government says, why is this violent and aggressive? Because, in their view, we think falsely, as, as we've discussed, but because, in their view, there's a sufficient risk of injury on arrest. If that's going to be the case, if you're going to be able to show conduct as violent and aggressive, simply because there's a sufficient risk of injury associated with it, the violent and aggressive conduct standard does nothing. That doesn't square with the answer you gave me with regard to burglary. If what you just said is true, burglary wouldn't be among the listed crimes. No, the, 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 the distinction I'm drawing here is the act that you take of invading somebody else's space and the prospect, what you're doing is you're consciously taking an act fully aware that violence might ensue, which suggests that you are the sort of person who is comfortable in a violent situation or at least dangerously comfortable in such a violent situation, regardless of how frequently that, re that circumstance actually is realized. You're the sort of person who has taken an action that expresses comfort with that sort of situation, failing to so report nothing. Invading someone's space, so trespass would be covered by this statute. You're invading uh, someone's space. If it's, if it's felonious, trespass might be uh, you're invading someone's space in a circumstance where the response is it, it, I think there's a decent argument for trespass, if for, if for no other reason than the act itself, um, on the violent and aggressive standard side, the act itself is more or less the same as burglary. It's not as if you can immediately tell from observing the burglar, enter the structure that he has the intent, the requisite intent to commit another crime. But the other reason why I doubt that trespass might be might satisfy the standards because there may not there, there doesn't appear to be a serious potential risk of injury. The second the other requirement may not be satisfied. I just don't have any information about that. Your argument is that the failing to report is not violent and aggressive, and therefore, no matter what degree of risk the statistics might show, it wouldn't qualify. Uh, I, I'm making both arguments, Your Honor. But yes, that is one. That is one of my arguments. If there are no further questions, I'll reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Roberts. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Failure to report escape qualifies as a violent felony under the ACCA's residual clause because it creates a serious potential risk of physical injury that's comparable in both kind and degree to the risk that's created by the enumerated offense of burglary. Uh, failure to report escape is similar in kind to burglary because it's purposeful, violent, and aggressive in the same way as burglary. Mr. Roberts, wouldn't that be so of any crime? I mean, this is failure to report any crime, any, an arrest for any crime has a certain risk that the arrestee is going to resist. 
Is there anything different? Is there anything yes. greater about this arrest for this kind of crime? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, uh, two points on that. First, escape and uh, failure to report escape, other types of escape and recapture are linked in a way that arrest and the typical crime aren't because uh, escape inherently avoids, uh, inherently involves the avoidance of custody, and custody is the very obligation that recapture is trying to impose. But avoiding arrest isn't an element of the typical crime. So the connection between arrest and the ordinary crime isn't close enough to justify considering the violence in arrest, uh, in the arrest, in whether the crime is violent. Also, the risk — Say that again. I, I didn't understand it. Okay. What, what I'm saying is it's an element of escape that you're avoiding custody. Um, and escape is a continuing offense, and so it doesn't end until the uh, avoidance of custody is over. What's so that got to do with, with increasing the, the risk of violence? What it shows I, is I, I see, I, I see your, your, your kind of elements argument, but it, it seems to be beside the, the, the point that we're It shows a close connection between the two. Yeah. Um, and so when, you're, when the uh, uh, offender is committing the crime, it's uh, appropriate to hold him accountable for what he can see is so tightly, uh, closely connected to the crime, and which, in fact, has to happen in order to end the crime. Yeah, but um, the crime is still a, the crime that we're concerned with here is still essentially a passive crime. He just doesn't show up. Well, and I, given, you know, the, the close logical connections, I don't see that the close logical connections convert the passive crime into a higher degree of, of resisting arrest. Well, from, it, from any other. In fact, it suggests just the opposite. To address the, the, the passive point, deliberately failing to comply with your legal duty to report to, do, to prison um, is, not, uh, is not doing nothing, as, as Petitioner said. It's not purely passive. Well, it, it's it a may, criminal pre, act. It may precisely be doing nothing. If, if I say, you know, it's Monday morning and 9 o'clock, I'm supposed to, um, to report to prison, uh, and I'm going to stay home. My purpose is to stay put in my armchair. That's purposeful conduct, and it's about as passive as you can get. It's, it's purposely inviting the violent confrontation when the law enforcement officers come to terminate it the is, event. You, you could say, you say you the, the same thing about failure to respond to a traffic ticket. Um, no, because in, in failure to respond to the traffic ticket, um, the, first of all, um, it's not clear that uh, somebody's going to come after you um, and try to physically bring you in. Second of all, um, the offender isn't uh, expecting them and on edge and prone to react violently. Third, he hasn't demonstrated already that he's unwilling to submit to custody. And the, the fact offender that is prone to react violently if he doesn't respond to a traffic ticket? No. I'm saying just the opposite of that. I'm saying that it's different. Because here you've got somebody who's expecting the police to come. He's looking over his shoulder all the time. He knows they know he didn't come to prison. He knows they know who he is. They probably know where he is. If he's sitting at home, they know where he is. What is and your understanding of the Illinois statute? It is, I take it, only triggered by failure to report for confinement? This what about, like, uh, you know, you've got to see your probation officer every this offense that he was convicted of is failure to report to a penal institution, failure to report to prison. And you um, concede the probation or parole situation? I think a probation violation is a different, uh, different circumstances. It doesn't involve uh, the same refusal to submit to custody um, that, that this offense involves. So um, we need really not, so not so much statistics about how many times violence results, 
but statistics about how serious the police are about picking somebody? I don't think you really need the statistics, Your Honor. I think it's, a common, it's common sense that the police are going to make vigorous efforts to recapture people who uh, fail to show up to prison the way they're supposed to. But it's not common sense that the person who has been guilty of a crime so gentlemanly that they only made him uh, report to prison on weekends uh, would uh, confront the policeman with violence when he comes. This is not normally what you think of as, as a violent type who's, who's been told to report weekends to the prison. Well, but, but did, did he get additional time, by the way, when, when they was, finally brought him back? When he was sentenced, when he was convicted of escape, he was sentenced to uh, six months in prison, the, in jail that was stayed, probation for 30 months, um, and no violated time. his the probation and prison he ended time up was in jail stayed, for right? five years. So he just, he just had to make up the weekends that he had lost. No, he didn't just have to make up the weekends that he was lost. Um, That's what Mr. Hoffman told us. I know that, I but, that but I don't think that that, that is uh, accurate for the sentence to, for, for escape on um, page 113 to 114 of the JA. Your Honor, um, which is the the PSR uh, describing um, what uh, happened for this offense, it says uh, that he has 30 months probation. It's in the the second volume, the volume under seal. Well, this guy um, doesn't sound, doesn't sound to me like Jack the Ripper. He really doesn't. Uh, it, it, you know, I, we're not supposed to be looking at the individual uh, offender here as the categorical approach, but he had been convicted of robbery and aggravated battery. Your Honor, so he's, he's not um, somebody who has not done uh, any violent crimes tell me, tell me. either. And what's, what's different is that he's now deliberately failed to comply with his legal duty to report. He's now deliberately resisted custody. Um, so, but would so, the statute apply if, say, he, he did, he's supposed to go in on the weekends. Instead, he goes out on a binge, and then he voluntarily comes in on Monday morning saying, yeah, I fa- failed to report. And so here I am. First of all, while he's out on the binge, people could be coming and looking for him, and the violent confrontation could occur. Second of all, um, even if in the unusual case of somebody who comes in voluntarily um, uh, hours late, a few days late, there wasn't a a risk of, of violence, which we think there can be, but even if there was none, it wouldn't matter because you're applying the categorical approach here, and what you don't look at, you don't look at the unusual case. You look at the elements of the offense in the ordinary case. Can you can you tell me? Uh, the U.S. attorney uh, has has this case. The man failed to to, to report for custody some a few years earlier, and you have this offense. Uh, does the district attorney, or probably the United States attorney, have some discretion here that he may not prosecute at all? What goes into the? I think generally the what, what policy. What goes through the mind of, of, of a prosecutor who says, because this fellow failed to report earlier for this offense, I'm going to give him 15 extra years in jail. Well, Your Honor, he, he's looking what, at his what, whole. What, what, his what do the? Are there many instances where you think, in a case like this, a U.S. attorney would just elect not to file that charge? I. I or do you think they automatically file every time? And if not, how do they decide? I think generally that, that uh, 
they look at the conduct that's been committed and they, uh, that the policy is to uh, charge uh, the, the uh, maximum charges that are supported by what the, uh, what the defendant uh, has done. But here you don't do they ever not look, like the, do they ever look at the attorney. This attorney has been giving us a hard time. We ought to uh, show him that we really mean business. Uh, they look at the nature of the, of the identity of the, of the counsel of the defendant. Do they ever look at that? I, I, I'm not aware of that. I can't uh, can't speak to to the fact that they would do that, Your Honor. But here you've got in the ACA, you've got not one previous um, violation for escape. You've got three violent felonies that you have to have, um, and this was his third one. With uh, in addition to uh, robbery and aggravated battery, and um, in addition to distributing cocaine uh, within uh, a thousand feet of public housing. Um, and so we're not talking friend, about people. Excuse me. I understood your friend to say that you don't have a single example of failure to report leading to a violent confrontation. That, that's also uh, incorrect, uh, Your Honor. Uh, two of the four cases that we cited in our, in our brief, in our anecdotes, involved uh, injury to innocent bystanders. It's true we didn't uh, highlight that in the uh, parentheticals to those cases, but um, it's on page 19, um, the... We cite uh, various cases, and we also then go on to cite some articles. So you have an example. So you have two examples. We have those two examples. We, I mean, you know, I haven't gone out and looked for uh, other cases. Those are just two out you, of the you four. You haven't gone out and looked for other. Cited. I'm sorry. You haven't gone out and looked for other cases. In, in, in addition to those, no, I I went to get some sample cases. I haven't gone to see if I could find more cases um, of those. In addition, in the Massachusetts data, there. Uh, there are uh, two uh, of the 18, uh, admittedly the sample small in Massachusetts, Mr. but it's 11 percent of the people violently resisted and they were charged with assault and battery on a police officer. Um, I think that that's uh, indicative of possible injury. And in any case, the question but Mr. is. Mr. Roberts, have you had occasion to look at the recent uh, figures compiled by the Sentencing Commission? Yes, uh, Your Honor. And I think that the Sentencing Commission data also supports, again, the, the, uh, the sample size is small. Um, but the question here is, is there a potential risk? And what the sentencing data shows for failure to report escapees is that 7.1 But is the magnitude of the risk relevant? Supposing it happens one out of 10,000 times or uh, 99 out of 100 times, are they different cases? We don't think that you should be looking at the statistics at, at, at all, Your Honor. But uh, so, I mean, you know, that's our, our fundamental point is that, that the ACA requires a potential risk. The James case illustrates uh, that you decide these cases without statistics. But, but the, the potential risk is based on an empirical assessment. What's an, it's, how can we make an empirical assessment without statistics? What James says is that you try to assess whether the degree of risk is comparable to the degree of risk presented by one of the enumerated offenses. And as you did in Isn't James. Isn't that based on our experience? Because we have these cases. We've been lawyers. We know what they usually involve. We have some sort of a, yes. an, 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 an instinct or a, a basis for making a judgment. Yes. If statistics can inform that, why ignore the statistics? I, I'm not saying that you should ignore the statistics, but the statistics are neither necessary nor dispositive. And I don't think the statistics cast any doubt on the common sense. Uh, conclusion uh, based on uh, some of the factors I was talking about before about why there's a potential for violence during recapture. But your argument goes simply potential. to whether there is a potential, and the statute says serious potential. 
Well, which gets us, it seems to me, to the point that Justice Kennedy is making, and that is we've got to have something more than an instinctive belief that something bad might happen. Well, I think James addresses that, Your Honor, and James says that in deciding whether you have a serious potential, you look to uh, the enumerated offenses and you determine yeah, is they, this They would is take this examples of cases in which there was serious potential, but in any event, you can't lose sight of the, of the modifier. It's got to be more than a so-called potential it has It has to be more than a potential. It has to be as, as serious in the sense that it's similar in degree, comparable in degree, to uh, one of the enumerated offenses. What are we? Because I, I, Justice Stevens, I think you should address the statistics in the sentencing report. Okay. And as I read them, they put together, if you put together failing to report and failing to return, you get 160 cases in their sample. And the number of those cases, whether you looked at the time when he left or whether you looked at the time he was apprehended, in which force was involved, is zero. The number of cases in which injury was involved is zero. The number of cases where he had a dangerous weapon is five. That's right. And the right. sample so size. So now there we are. Now it's a 3.1 percent, 3.1 percent rate of uh, having this dangerous weapon when he's being uh, being taken into custody um, for for this offense and. Um, you know, looking at the, at the failure to report people, which is what this person's charged of, of those 42 people, that was 7.1% 7, 7. of those people that had a weapon. And if one of those people had used that weapon, that would have been a 2.4% chance of injury. Now, I'm saying the sample size is small, and this shows why it's dangerous to put too much weight on it. But that would have been a 2.4% rate of injury. And in Tennessee versus Garner, this court cited a statistics in, in, this, in the 1970s about the risk of violence during burglary. And this was household burglary, which you'd think might be like. But you, you have every opportunity. And we have 160 cases out of a universe, I guess, of I don't know what the universe is. But sampling proceeds through a small number of cases. And you could, of course, criticize the Sentencing Commission of effort if you have a statistician or someone who will tell us that that sampling was not an appropriate method to proceed. Is there any such person? Well, no, Your Honor. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying that you have to take into account the sample size, and you have to take into account that there are... Oh, no, why, why? That was my question. Why take into account the sample size because in the absence of a statistician who would tell us that the sample size is too small to reach the conclusion that the Commission reaches. Because my point is that, that take the 42 failure uh, to report people, which is the offense here, okay? Three of them, three of those 42 had guns. If one of those three had used the guns, that would have been a use of force, an instance of actual violence. That percentage, I'm not, I'm not questioning the, the statistical validity of anything. I'm taking it on its terms. That's a 2.4 percent statistically, and it's 3.8 percent in, in uh, household burglary. So I, I just think that, that the statistics are very, are very low. The risk of actual violence in burglary I'm, is low. I'm sorry, Counsel. One of my the, colleagues is the, trying to ask a sorry. The problem is that, that you, you say if he had used a gun, and he didn't use a gun. I mean, to, to, to come up with your statistics on the basis of something that didn't happen is not using statistics. It's using imagination. 
Well, Your Honor, the statute, again, talks about the potential risk. It doesn't talk about the actual use of force or the uh, actual injury. The actual use of force is covered by Clause 1. Do you think those statistics show a greater danger than the dangers from drunk driving that were involved in Begay? No, but I think the drunk driving, that what, what concerned the Court about drunk driving was that the crime is a strict liability crime. It didn't involve deliberate conduct. This conduct um, is purposeful. Petitioner doesn't, uh, doesn't contest that. Um, and the, the, the situation here is a different kind of risk. It's like the risk in burglary. It's the deliberate commission of the crime despite the clear risk of an ensuing violent confrontation. Um, and so uh, the, the parallel, there really isn't a parallel to the uh, strict liability crime there where the injury, the court, the court said in Begay, there is a serious risk of injury. The problem is that the crime is just not personal, so it doesn't show this willingness to harm others. Well, um, of course, that's, that's the point. Begay talked about purposeful, violent conduct, not just purposeful conduct. Yes, Your Honor, um, but uh, you, have to, you have to talk about the violent conduct in context, and what it said is that, that all these enumerated crimes are violent crimes. But burglary um, is violent not because the violence is some uh, element of the offense, there's nothing about the, uh, the elements of the offense that's violent. What makes burglary violent is the fact that the offender deliberately commits it, even though he knows it could trigger this violent confrontation. And your and distinction between just this crime and crimes in general is that this person has shown that he or she doesn't want to go back into custody. I, I think it's, it's, it's numerous things, but the avoidance of custody is sort of a categorical difference between this and all the other crimes, Your Honor. It's, a, it's an element of this crime that he's, he's doing. That, that also factors in to the fact that the risk of violence uh, during recapture um, is going to be greater than the risk of violence in apprehending an ordinary criminal for several different related reasons. One, there, is, there, there was — this case comes to us from the Seventh Circuit, right? Yes. And am I correct in understanding that since this case was decided, the Seventh Circuit has changed its position and has gone the other way. Yes, the Seventh Circuit thought that uh, applying the purposeful, violent, uh, and aggressive requirement of Begay required a, a different uh, result because uh, it, uh, it thought that uh, it meant that the crime had to involve violent conduct itself, and it didn't uh, appreciate uh, the point I was making before, that burglary um, doesn't involve that violent conduct itself, and that burglary is violent because of the prospect of the violent uh, confrontation. Uh, and so that's, the, that's what led the Seventh Circuit astray the uh, second time around. Um, the but first time around, didn't one of the judges suggest that there ought to be a study comparing the frequency of violence in escapes from custody to the frequency of violence in failure to report, and isn't that what we now have from the Sentencing Commission? Yes, uh, they did ask for, for statistics, um, but uh, I would uh, stress again why we think that, that um, looking to statistics as some kind of a requirement is, you know, both perilous and not required by the statute. Um, one, because the statute requires this potential risk, not actual injury. Two, because these data are just generally not going to be available. Um, and you don't have even the baseline 
uh, for the other uh, crimes, the enumerated crimes, uh, really to compare it to. And so the result, if you start looking around for statistics and saying we need these statistics to do it, is that virtually no crimes are going to qualify under the residual clause. And obviously that isn't what Congress intended when it adopted this broad uh, residual clause. May I ask you just to get some sense of what will qualify? I mean, I think we're starting, we, we all agree that the, the risk of, of violence in, in arrest is probably going to vary uh, depending on, on categorically, depending on the crimes. Uh, uh, I, I think I would probably agree that, that white-collar crimes uh, are, are not likely to, to uh, carry a very high risk of violence on arrest. So I, I, there's one category. Can you think of others, um, uh, other categories outside of white-collar crime that are going to have a a, a lower risk of arrest than, than, say, the failure to report category? What, uh, we wouldn't sweep in uh, any crimes based on arrest if the crimes don't themselves uh, involve, as part of the crime, the avoidance of custody, um, because that shows the, the close link between the crime that I was explaining before. That's sort of the categorical um, difference, although I would agree, agree with you, certainly, that uh, in white-collar crimes, many cases, the uh, offender is going to submit uh, voluntarily to custody. Um, they're not even going to come after him. Um, and he hasn't uh, done anything to show his uh, likelihood to resist in any way. Um, and so there's going to be a significantly less uh, connection there. Violent crimes where you might think that there's going to be a higher uh, incidence are going to be covered uh, based on the violence of the crime um, anyway. They're going to be in Category 1. Right. Yeah. They're going to be covered yeah. already. Um, so, you know, one, uh, we think there's a categorical difference between this kind of crime, uh, which has as an element avoidance custody, and um, all of the ordinary crimes that you're talking about. Um, but even if you go um, and set that aside and don't draw that categorical line and you look at, well, what's the risk of violence? Um, here, what you've got is you've got, you know that they're going to come after him. He knows they're coming. Um, he's already deliberately, uh, he's already indicated his unwillingness to submit to custody. They know that, so they come prepared for resistance. And in Illinois, he's by definition a recidivist felon if he's committed this crime. And those are characteristics that are uh, particularly indicative of dangerousness. So we think this is, sets it quite apart um, from other crimes in terms of the uh, risk of violence that, that um, we're talking about. Uh, do you happen to know how many uh, additional crimes uh, are likely to uh, raise issues like this under the residual clause? Um, not, uh, you know, how many could be covered altogether or? Uh, well, after we decide this case, how many more cases like this do you anticipate that we're, we may get under ACA? Well, I'm hopeful that uh, the Court won't have to decide uh, too many other cases with the guidance that will be given by um, uh, Begay and James, uh, and now, uh, and now this case. Um, so, uh, you know, it has been, it, it, this case, uh, the court took, um, it, it had been holding the case for Begay, um, and it took it, uh, rather than, uh, vacating and remanding. So it's not as if, uh, this is a case where some, uh, conflict has developed afterwards that the court was taking to resolve. Uh, we Mr. think Mr. Roberts, uh, sorry. Do you think a soldier who's AWOL is commits a violent crime? I think a soldier that goes AWOL 
Um, I mean, the, the soldier that goes AWOL does uh, probably invite uh, somebody to come after them. Uh, it's a little bit harder case here because it's not somebody who's a recidivist uh, felon. Well, they have to be a recidivist. You're counting this is one of three offenses for an, for an aggravated sentence. You never have the isolated question. Well, when he did it first, he could have done it at his first crime, so you don't know when he did this that he had the other two. So it counting under, the, crime counting under a, the ACA. It's his third crime, but not if it's his first. Well, you don't look to the individual person. We're looking to the ordinary case, and we know from the elements here that you have a recidivist, uh, you have a recidivist felon. Um, I do think that there's a risk of, you know, there's a, that there is a risk of violent confrontation when a soldier um, goes, goes AWOL, Your Honor. I just don't think it's quite as, uh, as clear a risk as it is as it is here, but uh, you know I, I would have to say that there's some risk. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, the if I could just uh, address something that, that Justice Kennedy had raised uh, before um, about uh, statutes, unlike Illinois statute that has a, a that a generally um, prohibit escape. Um, one. Uh, one possible problem that could arise from a holding that uh, offenses like failure to report uh, are not violent felonies is that a statute that broadly covered escape, uh, the result would be that jailbreak escapes would not be violent felonies under that statute because the statistics that are out there suggest that 89% of uh, all escapes are either walkaways or failure to report. And so, unless the charging document specifically charged it as a jailbreak escape, then uh, the general something that was charged under the general escape statute um, would not qualify for coverage uh, under the ACA. And um, yes, I remind if the court has no further questions, uh, we would ask that the judgment of the court of appeals be affirmed. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Hockman, you have 11 minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, just to begin with uh, where Mr. Roberts left off, most states, in fact, do distinguish in their statutes between failure to report and, uh, and prison break escape. Those are cited by both parties in the briefs, and you, you can review them. But there's, there are clear distinctions in the law. So the risk that prison break escape is somehow going to escape, escape if you will, from the scope of the statute as a result of a, uh, a reversal is, is unfounded. Um, just to, to make a couple of things clear, uh, First of all, with respect to the sentence, Justice Ginsburg, uh, the, he was sentenced to six additional months, but it was stayed, as, as, as was mentioned. And, and so when I was answering that question, he did not serve additional time as a result of that, and, and that's what I was referring to. If you look at the sentencing transcript, um, that's where the indication is that he did, in fact, serve out the four additional uh, weekends. It's not noted in the. It's not noted as an additional sentence and punishment for it. What, what was he serving those weekends for? What was the crime? That was the the armed robbery. The the, the robbery crime, not armed robbery. The, the robbery crime. Uh, that's the first predicate offense here, Your Honor. Uh, he just gets weekends for that. How many weekends? Eleven. It's a pretty good deal. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, a second, with respect to the, to the anecdotal cases. Uh, you know, I, we looked at them. You could look at them. If there, if there are two instances where there are injury, there are two instances where we're injury. I, I didn't catch that. Uh, I apologize if I misspoke. Uh, but it doesn't change the core of the problem, which is that the anecdotal evidence produced, ex and, and that dates back all the way to 1977, they looked back at cases. I mean, they're, they're, they're covering an extraordinary broad period of time. 
um, in, their, in, in looking for this stuff. And there's just, not, there's just not a lot there, if there's anything there at all, with respect to injury associated with failure to report. On the, on the core substance of their argument, they, the, Mr. Roberts emphasized that failing to report has as an element avoiding arrest, avoiding confinement. I don't actually think that's right. There's nothing about concealment. There's nothing about hiding. There's nothing about seeking to escape from a police officer who comes to bring you back. He just didn't go. And in fact, we don't, the record doesn't explain why, but, you know, it's, it, was, it was the November to December period. It's the holiday period of time uh, for people when they, obviously, for a variety of reasons, might prefer to spend time with their families. Whatever the reason was, statistics show that the number of robberies increases during the holiday season. He just needed to get. <laughs> and I thought he did this four times. I thought there were four. There were four periods from the end of November, four consecutive weekends from the end of November into December. Uh, there's no indication, Mr. Chief Justice, that any further robberies were committed during that period. But the point is — Well, there's no indication he meant to spend time with his family over It's not in the record. It's, 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 it's absolutely not in the record, Your Honor. No doubt. Um, but the point is that while, while Mr. Roberts stood up and said it's about avoiding arrest, it's about concealing yourself, it's the sort of person who's prone to react violently, the fact is that's speculation. And everything we know from the Sentencing Commission — uh, and from their own efforts, suggests the contrary. And indeed, even the dangerous weapon findings of the Sentencing Commission, I think, should be excluded, because under the guidelines, the mere possession of a weapon is not a violent felony. A felon in possession has not, is not, cannot be a predicate offense under the guidelines. And so the mere possession of a weapon, which is all you have on those five instances, by the way, the fact that they did not double count them as also including force, suggests they weren't used in any way, they weren't brandished in any way. Uh, it, it's just not there. There's really nothing there to support the government's speculation. Uh, if there's no further questions, thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted.